Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, What's Up Danger? Uh, because uh, we are individuals in a web of trauma and avoidance. And uh, my talk tonight is a slender thread in, uh, in turning this into a web of relatedness and healing and not transmitting toxicity. So I didn't go into medicine to make a fortune and of all my plans, uh, this is the one that's worked out best. Um, so, so I appreciate any donations, but they're not, they're uh, totally optional. Um, and that'll help me offer my workshops in San Francisco regardless of need. Um, so mindfulness and compassion help us navigate difficult situations and relationships. Um, but last week, I didn't see it, but last week Andrew Yang made a joke about being Asian and therefore knowing a lot of Asian doctors. Well, I try to stay off of Facebook, but I was on there for a quick look last night and several friends had shared a rather polemical black and white blog post deriding him for supposed insensitivity to the effects of the damaging model minority myth. And they essentially questioned his character. Um, there's also been a Washington Post article and other articles on the issue uh, in the space of half of a week. Well, I'm an Asian American doctor, and the first doctor I knew was my mother. We immigrated uh, when I was just a year and a half old, and uh, she, uh, she started off, we started off in the South, and she uh, immigrated, helped by uh, black administrators and black physicians to, to come over here and work in inner city hospitals and rural areas and serving the poor. Uh, she was paid in uh, vegetables and potatoes and onions at times. And um, she also worked uh, for most of her career uh, at a state hospital in Georgia, uh, serving predominantly the developmentally uh, delayed institutionalized folks. And I'm proud of her immigrant journey and proud of her for becoming a woman physician in India. And I think Andrew Yang, this is not, not a political endorsement, I think he would be proud to know her too. I don't think his comment was hurtful. Uh, I felt he was rubbing elbows with a stereotype and a reality uh, that there are, in fact, a lot of Asian American doctors um, to diffuse tension and gain camaraderie, which is exactly what humor does. When we feel awkward or uncomfortable, it's all too easy to get self-righteous because the wounds are deep. Um, and humor around identity issues can diffuse tension, but, can, but it can also make us feel awkward. Um, and there are many traumatic wounds in our communities. Uh, wounds of racism, sexism, homophobia, class, religious intolerance, and so forth uh, are ultimately relational wounds. Um, and it's easy to become angry and self-righteous when you feel you're carrying awareness and consciousness that others don't have. But compassion and mindfulness help us relate in the awkward and uncomfortable and difficult situations, which basically the world is right now. Um, and we all have a lot to learn from each other. And it's good to stay humble because even people we think are not fully woke are people. And they have things to teach us. Uh, as the Buddha said, better than a thousand hollow words is one word that brings peace. A little compassionate and mindful relating can go a long way towards healing our divides. So, uh, so compassion is how we do human. Caring for others is literally what we do best, despite glaring examples to the contrary and tragic shortcomings. We care for children, family, tribe, and community, and networks of caring strengthen us. The top image on the, on the left there uh, is a skeleton found in Vietnam. 
It's 4,000 4, years old. And 4,000 years ago, this individual, this young man, uh, had a spinal disability. That would, and he, was, he had, had been cared for for at least 10 years by others before he passed away. So props to the Vietnamese. Uh, perhaps this community were ancestors of Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, here's a quote from the New York Times article on the skeleton. His fused vertebrae, weak bones, and other evidence suggested that he lies in death as he did in life, bent and crippled by disease. They gathered that he became paralyzed from the waist down before adolescence, the result of a congenital disease known as clipple file syndrome. He had little, if any, use of his arms and could not have fed himself or kept himself clean, but he lived another 10 years or so before he passed away. So he had to have been cared for by his family and community. Apparently, that Asian knew a lot of doctors too. Um, but there are examples like this from all around, all around the world. Um, we have evidence of healthcare going back 1.6 million years, but it probably goes back even further than that. Uh, Neanderthals and other early humans provided healthcare. Neanderthals knew a fair number of doctors too. Um, so the provision and receipt of healthcare may therefore reflect some of the most fundamental aspects of a culture, something important to remember as we're thinking about healthcare these days. Uh, healthcare is the world's oldest profession. Caring for others is the world's oldest profession. So compassion is central to our social being, and our social being, our relatedness, is central to our identity. The Dalai Lama said, at the most fundamental level, our nature is compassionate. Cooperation, not conflict, lies at the heart of the basic principles that govern our human existence. Indeed, there's scientific evidence for this. Cooperation is a winning strategy in complex computer simulations of the prisoner's dilemma, for example. And an Ubuntu proverb from modern Africa states, people become people through other people. We build each other through relatedness. I write in my book, Face Buddha, about the psychology of social media. We are who happens to us and what we make of the happening. John Bowlby, attachment theorist and psychiatrist wrote, there is no such thing as a baby. There is a baby and someone. So uh, we, we can notice everyday acts of compassion and caring. So what about, it, just to open it up a little bit, what, what have you noticed uh, every day uh, in, uh, regarding caring? How have you noticed caring in your daily lives? All right, sure, taking an interest in other people. Yeah, anything else? A couple of days ago, there was a, there was a homeless woman that uh, uh, is in Japantown here, and uh, I think I gave her a muffin. Mm -hmm. and, and she gave me a hug, and I, I was very uncomfortable because mm -hmm. I'm going, and I didn't know how to, I didn't want to be rude to her, but, um, it was a. It was an act of. I'm, not, I'm sorry. I'm not putting it right. It was a generosity. Would you say? Oh, sorry. Her, your act was an act of generosity or yeah, compassion. Yeah, and, and what she gave me back was like, whoa! I was like, okay. whoa! All right. Well, that, that's a good point. That's actually a good point to notice. Is that uh, well, it might have felt like too much or surprised you at the time, but but when when uh, when we're involved in compassionate loops, both parties or all parties do benefit in some way. 
even though sometimes maybe it's more than you wanted. Um, but uh, any other examples of, uh, yeah? I noticed that uh, where I live, I live in a building with a lot of seniors, and mm -hmm. I think the currency, if you want to call it that, is people giving each other food all oh, the time. Yeah. And it's sure. you know, with much more than just a food right. item. It's, it's meant to keep, show care and concern, and it's reciprocated. It's, a, it's, a, it's right. really a thing. Right. Heart to heart and belly to belly, yeah. right? Okay. Yes. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, so most of us practice some form of compassion or caring for others every day. Um, and uh, it, it does feel good, as I mentioned, for all parties, generally speaking, and it's necessary. But general friendliness, asking folks how they're doing, smiling, and so forth, uh, are, uh, uh, is one, one method of uh, caring. Um, also, uh, the care we put into not accidentally harming others. Um, and also the care we put into benefiting others uh, and paying attention, noticing what's happening around you is a way of taking care of yourself and other people as well. And also what I call the subtle infrastructure of care and compassion. This is the web of, of uh, compassion and relatedness that we're involved in. And I'll give you an example of that. I don't know if any of you have read the, the book Life of Pi or seen the movie by Ang Lee uh, about uh, six, seven years ago. Um, so uh, the basic, uh, uh, basic storyline, the basic narrative of this story is that a young Indian boy named Pai uh, is, uh, uh, is crossing the ocean and his, sit, his ship goes down and he's tossed onto a boat uh, and, uh, by, by the sailors and the, the ship sinks, but he survives and it turns out there's a tiger on the boat because there was a zoo transporting animals on the boat as well. So, so he's stranded in this boat with a tiger and he has to use his wits and everything around him in order to survive. Um, so I write about this book in, in uh, my, my book, uh, Facebook, A Transcendence in the Age of Social Networks, um, and President Obama uh, called Life of Pi an elegant proof of God. Okay, so it's one of the things which I, I would disagree with President Obama about. Um, I called it an elegant proof of Jan Martel, the author, uh, because a work of fiction can't be proof of anything other than the workings of the author's mind. But that author's mind actually reveals a reality which I think uh, perhaps the author himself was not aware of. Uh, and I write, Pi, the young, the young Indian boy, is the beneficiary of much human care, hidden in a background of details. Others have built his lifeboat and supplied it with a treasure trove of food and materials vital for the journey. He is tossed onto the lifeboat by sailors he doesn't know. He is never completely on his own. Beyond the boat, he is adrift on a sea that teems with life capable of supporting his. And beyond that, he bobs on an ocean that is ultimately connected to land and people, his ultimate rescuers. He certainly masters his fate. He uses his agency to supreme advantage, but he lives only because of the context of life around him and invested in him. So compassion surrounds, envelops, and buoys him in all these ways. And perhaps one could read the interdependent sustaining surroundings as one manifestation of the divine, just as his will to survive, his tiger is another. 
So I showed this last week, but I'll show it again. Um, this is a simple diagram of our inner lives with examples of emotions, joy, sadness, fear, anger, disgust, despair, and mistrust. Adding friendliness and compassion to our inner lives makes all the difference. I call it umami, that fifth taste that makes everything more tasty and delicious. You know, uh, umami is one of the five flavors with uh, sweet, salty, bitter, sour being the other four. So umami is a glutamate stimulant and glutamate receptors are prominent not only on our tongues, but are also the most prominent receptors in our brains. So I personally have a hunch, at least a poetic hunch, that glutamate plays a key role in coordinating brain function and that the umami of friendliness and compassion can help make our inner lives and relatedness more coherent, manageable, and enjoyable on a neural level as well. So there's the umami. Um, so uh, compassion is beneficial to society and to individuals. It uh, brings uh, pleasure and happiness uh, in a positive feedback loop. Uh, George Valent uh, is the director of, was the director of the Grant Study, the longest running longitudinal study of men's health and happiness. And uh, he uh, stated, happiness is love, full stop. The warmth of one's relationships is the prime determinant of happiness, not achievements, not possessions, not how much you make. So there's scientific evidence uh, that supports our relatedness. Um, and uh, the Dalai Lama says, if you want to be happy, practice compassion. If, if you uh, want others to be happy, practice compassion. Um, so uh, compassion is good for the health and immune system. That's supported by research. And it engages our biopsycho, socio, cultural, spiritual web of healing. Uh, and it, it turns a web of trauma into a web of healing. And of course, that's Nelson Mandela, who I think is a prime example of compassion in the last century. But the world is smaller and, and we are also more immediately exposed to unfiltered and unprocessed trauma. We are living in times of extraordinary political tensions. There is a barrage of trauma and violence on the news and on social media. Uh, there is a seemingly overwhelmingly and insurmountable set of problems. There is change and disruption, social, environmental, political, economic, medical, and technological. And I think with all of these changes and difficulties, we have to ask, what is your schema for understanding and relating? And I think that uh, I like to uh, uh, quote Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, no mud, no lotus. Um, we can turn adversity and our, our difficulties today into awakening, growth, and deeper relationship. And I think that uh, mindfulness, compassion, and relationship are the way to do that. Um, so ultimately, the other schema is that disconnection is at the root of suffering. Uh, and the opposite of suffering is belonging. So uh, as E.M. Forster wrote, just connect. Compassion helps us connect and transform the friction of relationship. Uh, deep and powerful forces of disconnection are manifesting right now. As I mentioned, racism, sexism, homophobia, religious intolerance, fear of change, and on and on. Um, and it's a great opportunity to work at a deeper sense of belonging and maybe even work towards what Martin Luther King called the beloved community. 
So uh, there's a, a saying in Buddhist circles that there are three levels of Buddhist practice. You don't have to know these technical names, but there's Dzogchen, Mahamudra, and relationships. Okay, so um, relationships are the highest form of spiritual practice. Um, and here's an enlightened Buddhist practitioner describing his relationships. Uh, I call him the I don't know Lama, because relationships are very confusing. Um, but the beginner's mind of curiosity and open-mindedness is important to try and maintain. New things come up even in our longest running relationships, and new relationships can bring up new feelings in us. So uh, here's uh, my, uh, my standard go-to uh, principles are mindfulness, compassion, and relationship. And mindfulness and compassion, mindfulness being aware of what's happening in your mind and in the space between you and the other person uh, is, a, is, is very important to cultivate. And also compassion, concern for what, uh, what your own suffering certainly, uh, and we talked about self-compassion last week, but also uh, compassion and, and caring for what the other person may be experiencing. And all, ultimately all to build relationship. Uh, but to get there, we have to deal with difficult people and situations and who can bring out difficult emotions in us. So what's a difficult person? I think we all might have our own definitions, but, but they might be somebody who has uh, little or no empathy. They might be rigid thinkers. They might be narcissistic and self-centered. They might have low emotional intelligence, not really concerned about your feelings. They might be unaware. They might be power hungry, etc. Um, so you usually know you're with a, a narcissist in particular by how they make you feel. Angry, controlled, gaslighted like your reality has been distorted, devalued, helpless, filled with a dread of seeing them. Uh, you might feel like an extra in their movie, like an object for their use, like your needs, feelings, and thoughts are not important. Uh, or alternatively, you might feel at least temporarily idealized. And this is all due to a paucity or turbulence in their own inner lives because they are in fact suffering as well. Um, they often don't know how relationships work. So, so this is, it's important to keep that in mind. And, and I think try as much as possible not to think of people as being bad, um, but, uh, but just caught in their own uh, web of trauma, web of suffering, or, or lack of relatedness. Um, so I think staying true to and cultivating your own identity may be the biggest challenge the narcissist poses. And I think that's a particularly powerful uh, realization for these times that we live in. Um, uh, so, and I'll be talking more about uh, narcissism later in the series. But I wish they all came with a name tag that said this, hello, my name is Egomaniac. And I wish that we could just say to them, keep calm and get over yourselves, but, uh, but, but that doesn't always happen. Okay, so the difficult people in our lives push our buttons, and sometimes they're trying to get a reaction out of us as well, because it's exciting for them, or simply it's the only way they think they'll be heard. Um, so we all have a comfort zone, um, and, and then we have a growth zone and an overwhelm zone. I think mindfulness, compassion, and relationship uh, help, us, help keep us in the comfort and growth zones. 
uh, including self-compassion. Um, so it's important then to, uh, with mindfulness to know when you're getting overwhelmed, when you need to pull it back, comfort yourself, take care of yourself, and then venture forth into growth and uh, you know helping the relationship along if you can. And, and sometimes, sometimes it's uh, not possible and you have to draw boundaries or accept uh, uh, the difficult people for who they are, certainly. Um, but, uh, but this is the, uh, a good scheme that I like to keep in mind. Um, so these are the times that try our souls. What's a caring person to do? So part of what happens in difficult times is uh, that our survival brain gets activated. We go into fight, flight, or freeze. We give in to antagonism, fear, or avoidance. Um, that's, that's so understandable. Um, we can also engage in trauma and hate spirals. Uh, and stress, uh, stress hormones are released, such as cortisol and adrenaline. Um, we might burn out with cortisol and adrenaline in our system. We might stop believing in the bigger picture, our ideals, etc. Uh, basically uh, falling prey to nihilism and, and also the power complex. We're thinking we have to overpower somebody in order to win, and that's the only way to win. Um, but uh, I also think that there's another way, uh, the mammalian nurturing caregiving system. Uh, and I think that really helps us with long-term survival. Uh, as I said, compassion is how we do human. To tend and befriend, to engage our frontal lobes, our long-term planning, kindness, compassion, love, uh, and, uh, and with these come those, uh, uh, the, the kind of good hormones, oxytocin, the bonding chemical, uh, or the cuddling chemical it's called, uh, and endogenous opiates. So we feel good when we engage our nurturing systems. Um, so, so there are these two systems in the brain um, that, that are sometimes competing, but I think can coordinate. And I, I like to think of them not in opposition, but as in both important uh, ways of getting information about ourselves and the world. And I like to say we are two-spirited. Um, both of these sy systems are vital. Uh, uh, so we need the defensive survival brain and we need our compassionate potentials both. Um, so that defensive spirit, the amygdala, which is that, uh, that uh, primitive part of the brain wrapped deep within the, with, within the folds of the brain, um, that, when it's activated, it's very sensitive to threat, it can hijack the cortex and send you on uh, a, a survival brain uh, spree. Um, and it's very reactive, and I think it, it often fall, we all fall prey to loops in our minds of repeating uh, the same kinds of reactions to the same kinds of uh, events or similar events. And sometimes we mistake uh, a new event for an old event, and we react out of that, out of our conditioning. Um, there's also the cortical and higher centers responsible for those deeper responses. Um, and um, and they help, that helps us see the bigger picture. So both of these are necessary. Our survival brain can be spot on about deep threats, even such as climate change. I think that's also linked to our amygdala and associated cortex. Our human, human potential lies, I think, in helping our two spirits become more unified and helping our brain become more coherent and uh, coordinated. Um, mindfulness, compassion, and relationship helps our entire heart-mind. Um, and it's just like any form of creativity. Uh, your amygdala 
uh, might pitch a storyline of threat and uh, then your higher brain has to juggle it and come up with a, a, a deeper response. Um, and it's like, I think it's like jazz or a symphony or a society in our, in our brains, more than a computer. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't particularly care for all those analogies of the brain as a computer. I think it's really a, a society of relationships. Um, so uh, psychiatrist Viktor Frankl wrote, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is the power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So here are, here's another way of looking at the two spirits in action. So there's a complex diagram, you might not be able to read it all, but down here we have our common humanity. We're all born into the earth. Uh, on that level, we're all equal. Um, and then after we're born into the earth, we develop uh, relationships. We also uh, might be born with or develop a, a sense of insecurity, uncertainty, vulnerability, and precarity. And we are all basically as human beings precarious and uncertain and insecure. It's, it's like that's the reality. We don't know what's going to happen. So we're, we're, we're at that level very insecure. So uh, through, from that, we, from th that point, we uh, develop wounds, uh, wounds and disconnections. And they might be traumatic wounds, personal or communal uh, uh, traumas. Uh, and they could be real or perceived, uh, depending on how our brains function, depending on how our relationships have been. Um, and this can kind of stimulate both of our two spirits. And, and I don't mean this to be a dichotomy of one versus the other. I think we kind of parallel process these all the time. Um, so, but one side of it, uh, the kind of the more, uh, uh, the, the, the defensive spirit, uh, might lead us to mistrust and avoid situations that are difficult. Uh, it might lead to toxicity in relationships and reactivity, uh, anxiety, depression, shame, blame, and scapegoating. Uh, reactions of the power complex. Oh, I feel disempowered, so I've got to, you know, lash out and take power again. Um, trying to win antagonistically, feeling like all relationships are win-lose, uh, is really part of that uh, that uh, that that side of the picture. Uh, and it can lead to splitting the world into good and bad. You know, there, so so that's like. You know, we, we can imagine people um, uh, saying, you know, uh, certain types of people are, uh, are acceptable and other types are unacceptable, and this might shift, you know, so but that, that's called splitting. But on the other side, we see uh, the more uh, broader and healthier, ultimately, uh, pathway, cultivation of trust, friendliness, and compassion for self and other, others, uh, stability of identity and relationship. I think as we develop trust, we become more stable ourselves and in relationship. And finally, getting to a more interdependent sense of identity uh, and an increased sense of belonging, a felt experience of common humanity, that we're all in this together, and spiritual and relational depth. Um, and, but like I said, we parallel process these all the time. Um, and, and I think ultimately, cultivating our identities and our relati relatedness is what brings us to uh, stability. So here's another way of looking at the two spirits. Underneath everything, the earliest developmental stage is trust versus mistrust. Um, that's uh, as described by Erickson. Um, and uh, 
from that trust versus mistrust, we get to uncertainty, insecurity, vulnerability, and precarity. Um, now, trust can be low when vulnerable populations have more to lose from misplaced trust or there has been trauma, but it can also happen early in a new relationship or when something goes awry in relationship. And actually, millennials are the least trusting generation for the last 70 years, as long as it's been measured. Um, so, so this is something to uh, keep in mind. Their trust levels are around 18% when asked the question, do you generally trust others? So this is a, a, a generation, oh yeah, sorry. Just also, and are they also considered to be the most depressed group of people? Right, they've had a lot of depression and anxiety as well. So I think it's all related uh, to, to uh, decreased civic engagement, decreased relatedness, social media, you know, pulling us away from relationships onto our screens. Um, so there's, there's good and bad there, but, uh, but I think you know, the, the, the impact on relationships has been uh, significant. Um, so so uh, those experiences of vulnerability and uh, society not being related uh, uncover this uncertainty, insecurity, and vulnerability. But as I said, these are also part and parcel of being human. At the core of it, life is uncertain and precarious. We are all vulnerable and essentially insecure. So we can deal with uncertainty in survival mode, and survival mode is sometimes necessary. Um, so we see uh, in the short term, we might flip to power, control, having hard-edged judgments, and sometimes that's necessary. Um, but it can also lead to a kind of certainty about uh, the world, a need for closure in, in, in terms of just not being open-minded or just needing, needing hard and fast uh, uh, ideas about things to help stabilize us. It can also uh, lead to what's called crystallized thinking, which is basing all of your behavior based on past experiences as opposed to being creative in relationship. Um, uh, and we're all a mix of, uh, of all of these kinds of thinking. Also, at worst, blaming, shaming, scapegoating, ostracism, the cancel culture online. I think that's all about power and, and, and uh, kind of controlling who is acceptable in the group. Uh, and I think at worst, it can lead to a duality of oppressor and victim, uh, and also entitlement on both sides of this equation and, and a general adversariality. The longer term response uh, through mindfulness, compassion, and relationship, uh, I think helps us much to stay humble, to stay curious, uh, to stay creative, to have fluid thinking, not fixed modes of thinking, uh, to uh, cultivate a spirit of friendliness, letting go of grudges, animosities, resentments, and that's a process. Um, and uh, forgiveness, certainly, for other people and for ourselves as well, uh, accepting ourselves and others, and a sense of belonging. And I think ultimately this leads to some really uh, uh, important goals, uh, truth and reconciliation about traumas, restorative justice, and healing. Um, so I think those longer-term responses are, are really engaged. But as I mentioned, these two spirits are always in parallel processing. So, um, so I, 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 I like to kind of think of them as a Tao, a yin and yang, uh, different ways of uh, approaching the same issue. And you know, it's not to uh, be pejorative about any approach because uh, a traumatized person might need 
those things uh, on the, on the uh, left side to feel safe. Um, so, so this is just the way we are. And as I said, we, we uh, work with both of these in our two spirits. Um, so the stages of compassion, and I mentioned these last week, but to go over them again, uh, to notice suffering, to develop concern for the suffering, to generate a will to help suffering, and finally to take action to relieve the suffering. And I like to think of it as uh, taking the BART in from the East Bay. So you get to Embarcadero, you notice the suffering. Don't get off the train. You get to Powell Street, you, uh, you then develop concern for the suffering. You get to, I'm uh, sorry, you get to Montgomery Street, you develop concern for the suffering. Uh, you get to Powell Street, you generate the desire to help. Finally, you get off at Civic Center and take action to relieve the suffering. So mindful self-compassion and compassion cultivation training help us stay on the train and stay steady with our ultimate goal of relieving suffering. So this is a photograph of Ilan Kurdi, uh, who was a, a, a toddler washed up on a Turkish shore a few years ago. And so the identified life uh, that tragically passed um, can really stimulate a lot of generosity. Um, and, and it did, it, it really touched a lot of hearts and minds around the world uh, uh, with this photograph. Um, but also, these images can also be overwhelming and people can shut down. And uh, you can, you, people uh, are often do that. How can we possibly care about so many people? We, we can't you know, care about this. But I think it's, uh, well, this is called compassion collapse. We can't, we're unable to feel compassion for such numbers or this situation, or we won't. We choose not to because it's overwhelming or pointless, okay? So that's the danger, compassion collapse. Um, but the antidote is building out the infrastructure of compassion, both internally and in society. And, and it's important, uh, there's been some research on this, if you communicate efficacy of your actions, your donations or your actions will help in this way, uh, that can help people feel like they are practicing active compassion, their, their efforts make a difference. So active, practical, and strategic compassion. And also with the compassion cultivation training, workshops, and, and other mechanisms to build the, your own reservoir for compassion and not get burned out as you engage in compassion. Um, and building up that uh, web of mindfulness, compassion, and uh, relationship to build resilience. So um, this uh, is, is the Resilience Prescription by Dr. Dennis Charney. Uh, Dr. Dennis Charney is a noted researcher on resilience, um, and he's, he's come up with these uh, 10 uh, categories uh, in, in the Resilience Prescription. Uh, and I can, I'll email this uh, to you all. Um, it's a positive attitude, uh, and optimism is strongly related to resilience and can be learned. Two, cognitive flexibility through cognitive reappraisal, reframing the situation, uh, can get you to post-traumatic growth, and really knowing that it's, we don't have fixed amounts of uh, compassion and so forth. We can actually cultivate, and, and uh, having a growth mindset is so important. And failure is necessary for growth. Embracing a positive moral compass uh, with altruism and compassion, for example. Finding a resilient role model and uh, learning from them is very important. Uh, facing your fears uh, is so important. Uh, fear is normal 
and can be used as a guide. And, 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 and facing your fears can boost your sense of capacity. Uh, even in dealing with our own difficult emotions, I think one definition of happiness is really greater ability to deal with one's own difficult emotions um, and also deal with the difficulties between us. Um, six, develop active coping skills. Don't be passive in the face of difficulty, but uh, build up your toolkit or your reservoir of what, what you can do in difficulty. Seven, establishing and cultivating a, a supportive social network. Uh, eight, attending to your physical well-being. Nine, training regularly in areas such as emotional intelligence, moral integrity, and physical endurance. And finally, recognizing, utilizing, and uh, fostering your signature character strength. So what are you good at? How can, how can you kind of cultivate that strength? I think it's so important. So um, what about the fear that compassion would make you weak or complacent? Well, because of the two spirits, I don't think this is at all true. Um, there's another way of thinking the two spirits in action, um, thinking of the two spirits in action. It's the balance between fierce compassion and gentle compassion. So fierce compassion is taking action, speaking out, setting boundaries, and having a tuned righteous anger at times about injustice or, or uh, problems you may encounter. Uh, and the gentle compassion is the caregiving impulse, uh, tending and befriending, understanding, accepting, and reconciling. Um, so again, this is a balance uh, uh, of masculine and feminine energies that exist within us all. So by working with our two spirits and nurturing uh, mindfulness, compassion, and relationship, we can transform our lives and society. Uh, from extreme individualism, narcissism, the power complex, inequity, and with mindfulness, compassion, and relationship, towards re interdependence, relatedness, understanding, resilience, love, and equity. So thank you for listening to this presentation. And I teach these uh, workshops, the Mindful Self-Compassion is an eight-week uh, workshop two and a half hours a week uh, to, to build uh, uh, several dozen skills uh, in, in uh, caring for oneself uh, in, in one's difficult emotions. Um, and I also offer this as a three-hour standing mindful self-compassion workshop, which I could do at your organization, etc. Um, I also uh, will be teaching a compassion cultivation training uh, workshop. This was developed at the Compassion Institute, which sprang out of Stanford. Um, eight weeks, two hours a week, with home exercises and guided meditation to boost one's compassion towards others. And I do these kinds of lectures as well on uh, narcissism, Asian American psych uh, psychology, social media, internet addiction, and so forth in the coming weeks. Um, so here are some websites, sflovedojo.org, centerformsc.org. You can get a lot of resources about mindful self-compassion on both of those websites. And at the Compassion Institute, you can also find um, uh, other folks who teach uh, compassion cultivation training. Um, so, yeah, so, um, so that's it. All right, so thank you very much.